Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is the CEO of the brilliant organic baby food brand, Ellis Kitchen, Mark Cudigan. Known for the good stuff we do, Ellis Kitchen has been described by Innovate UK, amongst others, as a transformative presence in its market, and has made its name as a leading force in sustainability and better business. With a mission to improve children's lives through developing healthy relationships with food, today the company is one of the UK's most recognisable B Corps. For Mark, this is all about doing the right thing and doing it right. Mark, welcome to Changemakers. Let's talk about that mission. I have a dream, the good stuff we do. Over to you. Oh, well, thanks for having me in, in the first instance, uh, Michael. I'm very honoured to be on your on your podcast. Great to have you on it. And I'm, let's talk about that dream, the good stuff we do. The dream really is our sustainability plan, our 10-year sustainability plan, where we're always trying to push ourselves to do more, to be better. Um, I always liken it, you know, no company is perfect. We all have an impact on the planet. Uh, the question is, what are you going to do about it? So we're always striving to lessen the impact that we have on the planet and increase the impact that we have on our people and, and society more widely. Mm. I mean, it always strikes me that, I mean, and I've heard you speak and you're a great evangelist for B Corps. I mean, we've talked about it for our, for our own company as well. In terms of Ella's Kitchen, it strikes me that this is a brand that is known for doing the right thing, that it's actually built its whole reputation on that premise from the get-go. In terms of what creates that kind of special spirit, that special soul of a business like that, what what do you think are, are the vital ingredients? Well, I'd like to say it's all about me, but uh, <laughs> I've got to be honest here and, and say it all came from Paul Lindley and his vision initially for Ella's Kitchen. So Paul was the founder of Ella's Kitchen. Ella was his eldest daughter and he set Ella's up with a mission at its heart. You mentioned our, our mission at the beginning all around children's health and nutrition. It wasn't, the purpose of the business basically wasn't just to make as much money as possible. It was to deliver on our mission around children's health and nutrition. So we had that North Star from from the very, very start. And I would say as we've grown, we've just got better and stronger and delivered more on our mission, more from a sustainability point of view, much more from a B Corp point of view. And in a simple way, I see it as sort of like a circle that goes round and, and influences each other. And the, the better we do, the bigger the impact that we can have. The more money that we make, the more of an impact that we we can have as a business. We'll talk about B Corp in a moment, but it strikes me that a lot of businesses that self-identify with the phrase business as a force for good, the change makers, a lot of those are in the food space. I mean, I'm thinking about businesses like Rebel Kitchen and m- many others that see themselves as activists. I mean, I, I, I interviewed John Mackey, the Whole Foods founder, and you know, for him, this was about whole food, whole planet. Do you think there's something that when you are involved with nurturing people through food that actually you get to get a real feel for this quickly or not? Or do you think it's just coincidental that many of the kind of champions in in this debate have come from the from the food side of, of, of the business community? Well, I don't want to cop out here. I think it's a bit of both. Um, and I think if you look at the food and drink industry, there are a plethora of entrepreneurs that are setting up companies with sort of missions at their heart. So I think it naturally lends itself to sustainability. I mean, we're talking about food that comes from the earth, right? So so I think there's a, there's a natural affinity anyway. But when you look at sort of whether it's fair trade or B Corp or any of these other things, what happens is, you know, one company certifies. So when we certified Ella's Kitchen in 2016, there are only a handful of companies in our industry, in the food and drink industry, that were certified as B Corporations, literally just a couple. 
are well over 60. You know, you have Ocado who, who, who've got a web page dedicated to suppliers that, you know, that are B corporations. There are over 1200 products on that site. So you can see what happens is, and we've spoken to nearly all of those companies that have certified in the last you know, four or five years. And that's what happens. You know, we start talk to, you know, people that we know. And, and when, when you look at the B Corporation movement, you know, you find one company certifies in PR and then they talk to other PR companies and then others join. So it, it's sort of like concentric circles that go out. So on B Corp, I mean, if you were pitching this to listeners that are saying, what is B Corp? I mean, is it, I mean, a lot of people say, well, it's like, it's like fair trade and coffee, but, you know, 10x that across business in terms of doing the right things. I mean, is it more than that or is that a fair synopsis? I'd say it's a lot more than that. And I know that I'm going to come across as, as the guy that drank the Kool-Aid and, <laughs> and I am the biggest cheerleader for the movement going, it's out there, as, as you know, it's much more than that. So it is a commitment to the triple bottom line. So putting people, planet and profit on an equal footing. One of the big differences is in the UK, you know, you have to change your articles of association. So when you score a certain amount out of 200 to, and then you get, you get assessed and then you can become a certified B corporation. You then have to change your articles of association, not saying for next year or the year after, forever that your company will put people, planet and profit on an equal footing. You have to produce an impact assessment every single year and every three years you have to recertify. And it gets harder every two years, the assessment, as things change. So it's a massive, massive commitment. I mean, I did a talk this week to a, a company that's certified, and I said to all of the people that work for them, I'm like, this is, a, this, this is a big deal, that the people that run your company, your senior team, are committing to this forever. It's a really sobering thing. And people are like, wow, this is amazing. It really is amazing. Do you feel that the substance of that commitment is starting to enter the majority in terms of business thinking. Because, I mean, a lot, a lot of people have, have said that, you know, that the whole notion of business as as that sort of that force that 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 sort of that's sort the of force for, for planet for people that those things stand up as a good CEO speech, but are much more difficult to do as a practice. They're what you can do when you've made your profit. Obviously, you're one of a generation of leaders that are saying it's got to be so much more than that. But do you feel now that this is a mainstream commitment as evidenced by more of your colleagues in the B corporations? Or is there still a mountain to climb on this, do you think? Oh, gosh, I, I'd love to, to, to say that we're there and we've got critical mass, but that's just not the case. We have an absolute mountain to climb. And you saw the Manuel Faber uh, was forced out of Danone recently, and he, and he was a, a massive cheerleader for the B corporation movement. And, and business doing better. So we still have a mountain to climb, I'm, I'm afraid. Mm. I mean, a, a lot of people will say to you, look, tell us about the profit in the States. There are a group of companies that they call the firms of endearment. You know, these are businesses that are seen to be run by the heart, so Salesforce and a range of others. But it's almost like they are specially focused upon in terms of showing that they can perform as well as having a purpose. I mean, do you, do you think that you know, you've got a an additional duty to sort of show that you can hack it as great performance businesses, as well as being those that are really setting the course for a new way of doing things. Yeah, I think there's a bit of pressure around that. And businesses that don't succeed or fail or don't have good results that are B corporations, then they attract this attention of, oh, well, it's because it's because you're taking care of the, the planet and your people. 
But just think about it. I mean, this is this is the extraordinary thing, I think, for me, about something like B Corporation, right? So if you're only interested in making more money, if that is all you're interested in is the cash in your back pocket or the cash that you are delivering to your shareholders, if you take as much care of your people as possible, if you really care about the fulfillment and happiness of your people, if you start taking care of the planet and the environment, you will make more money. You will be able to connect with your the people that work for you. They will they will you know put in more work. They will come up with better ideas. They'll be able to connect with you know your customers, whoever they are, whether it's goods, services. It doesn't matter, right? Everybody that works in a company is a person. All of your customers are people. And so yeah, it, it sort of drives me slightly mad that it. it it hasn't been picked up more, more quickly. Well, and, and, I, and I think, you know, an interview like this is partially an opportunity to speak to critics because, you know, another argument that, that critics will often make is that, well, I understand that, that these businesses are doing good things, but, you know, they can't scale. They can't be true world beaters. And, and you know, the kind of Paul Palmer's at Unilever's and others are the exception, not the rule. Can you build a world beater? I mean, is Ella's proof positive that you can in its field? Yeah, I absolutely think you can. You can who can build a world beater. And I think world beaters will increasingly join the movement and they have to join the movement. There's a great quote from Barack Obama, which I love. He says, you know, we are the first generation of leaders that won't be able to look back and say, we didn't know. So here we are as leaders. Here we are as, you know, people running companies. Well, what are we going to do about this? This is the ultimate burning platform, isn't it? You know, when we're looking at things like COP26, which are going to focus the world's attention on climate change. And we, you know, we've got real issues of equity and fairness. There's a to-do list for leaders, which on face value could be seen as pretty daunting. I mean, I read something you said about your leadership style. You said the mantra which I run the company in is just do the right thing. What what does that mean to you and how do you practice that? I'm thinking this not so much about looking at the vista of a lot of other businesses, but how does that what does that mean to Mark, your style? What what should people know about you in terms of the way that you sort of operate at that kind of top echelon in the firm doing the right thing it sounds simple but it's not that simple you know we know there's a collection of people at ellis kitchen when we've made the wrong call the question is what are you going to do about it when you realize you've made the wrong call you need to change it right and and do the right thing and it is a moral thing right and but it is a mantra very much that i try and live every day by but in terms of my management style i mean my one of the things i'm super super passionate about is autonomy i want everybody at ellis kitchen to have autonomy in their roles i think if you break it down, people want two simple things from work and they're both based around pride. I think they want to have pride in the company that they work for. And that for me means that those that, that company has to have something about it other than just making money. So you go back to your parents, you're in the pub when the pubs are open, talking to your friends and you genuinely come alight, alive as you talk about the company that you work for. And there's that passion and drive. And the second thing I think people want is pride in the work that they do. And you can't have pride in the work that you do if you don't have autonomy in your job, if you're just told what to do. Is doing the right thing, do you think, about revealing who you are, the style of leader? I mean, I'm just wondering, how does the inner critic of your 
of yourself work in terms of when you do and and don't do the right thing. I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about the past has always been where we expect these kind of superhuman ideals from the people that 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 lead businesses or or lead leadership in 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 any walk of life. I mean, to what degree can you be a real person, a you know 360 degree person with 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 all of the the pluses and minuses that that entails? Do you think I try to be the same person? You know, actually, my wife would say I'm a much better person at work. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be the same person. I think, you know, honesty, authenticity and vulnerability, right? Uh, something I've learned certainly in the last, you know, four or five years is the importance of being honest and vulnerable to have a proper human connection. And we do it at Ellers. You know, you talked about the good stuff we do. We have a good stuff we do report every year. And every year, people are surprised by the things that we call out that didn't go well, the mistakes that we made, things that we didn't move forward as a, as a business. They're like, wow, you're being very honest here. But it's like, well, that's the way we've got to be. I remember talking to John Mackey, who I spoke about, and he was talking about the Whole Foods experience. That Actually, his his feeling was, I mean, obviously this was pre the sale to Amazon, but it, I, I spent some time walking the floors with him. And he talked a lot about the idea of the conscious consumer and the conscious employee. And his argument was that people just leave the best of themselves when they turn up to work and they they collect it when they leave. You know, the, the, the idea of, of work was this kind of like, almost like this unconscious environment where the kind of the idea of the whole person was really missing. I mean, is there something in that, do you think, in terms of the wider working experience about why people don't feel connection they might not feel the same sense of purpose with brands that that, that they buy do you, do you think i think there is something in that and i think it's for leaders and the culture of of the business to make people to to ensure that people can be themselves i remember interviewing someone she was the most junior person actually who, who joined ella's kitchen four years ago and it was brilliant in her last interview that I, I interview everybody in their sort of round three we call it and I said to her you know why do you want to join Ellis and she'd been interning with us and she said the thing is Mark I know I'm quite a strange person and I didn't reply to that I was like what did you mean? you know but I really feel that Ellis Kitchen I can be that strange person mm. well, as I'm in being a human being be yourself yeah like, you know, I, I didn't, so I'm saying, I think we're all strange. Like, if you look at it, we all do strange things. But I think it's really important that you bring your yourself to work. Otherwise, that's, you're living a sort of inauthentic life for most of your life, right? If you can't be yourself. And that's maybe why this kind of debate has become such a frontline debate, because we're talking about workplaces that allow more expression, less conformity, different ways of doing things. And of course, what happens is when people speak to that, I mean, I've had Nigel Wilson on the show from Legal and General, who's been called the Marmite Man by by newspapers because of that style. Larry Fink from BlackRock putting down social expectations for the investments, dismissed as a corporate socialist. I mean, this kind of like this idea that there is a need for conformity in business. I mean, that is, I guess, what you are massively challenging with B Corps and, and with business models like Ella's. Yeah, I wouldn't say we're, I think, Challenging is the wrong word. I'm like a stickler for words. I think words words are really important. I don't think we're challenging it. We're just showing there's another way. And actually, that other way is better. However you want to measure it, it's better. And I suppose that the front line of, of this debate today is three letters, ESG, environment, societal and governance, as being the three big issues that many of the world's largest corporations are looking at to prove the fact that they are 
purpose-led, doing the right thing. There are doubters. What do you make of it, Mark? Undoubtedly, there is some good work going on in the ESG bracket in, in companies around the world. But I do take a pretty dim view generally of ESG, and a lot of us in the sustainability world likewise do. You know, there was an article a couple of weeks ago where two of the top 10 performing companies from an ESG point of view were both oil companies. How can that be the case? And it reminds me a little bit of, I saw a BG's documentary um, last week. It was called How to Mend a Broken Heart. It had this expert talking about disco and the rise of disco. And he was saying, you know, disco was, it was really cool. When it first came out, it was amazing. It was a cultural shift. And what happened is the big labels suddenly thought, oh, we can make money out of this. And they piled in and they ruined it. And I, I kind of see ESG similarly. People set ESG up. It was great. We wanted to change the world. And now the bigger, big companies have thought, well, we need a piece of this. So it's a bit like CSR in the old days. Let's put a bit of money here. Let's game the system. We can go up the rankings. But actually, are they doing it for the right reasons? Are they actually making the change that they need to do? Those you know, CEOs and the senior people, can they actually look at what they're doing and say, yes, we are doing the right thing? Because I think in a lot of instances, the answer would be no, they're not. They're gaming the system. In terms of what is an important part of your model, it seems to be that activism is also important here and the causes that... The business seeks to address obesity being being one of those. Let's talk about the social good that you can do as a business in terms of actually what are the results you can deliver, as well as I guess the bigger picture sort of motivations that, that drive it. Yeah, I think brands have a lot of responsibility because we have a lot of people that, that buy into our our company that trust us and respect us. You know, we have a database of over a million parents that we can talk to, and I'll give you. One example of activism from a, from a few years ago, we took a look, we got the British Nutrition Foundation to help us as we assessed all weaning studies that had been done worldwide. And it was a huge piece of work. And we were able to prove for the first time that when you start weaning, so when you start giving a baby food for the first time, if you start with vegetables, right, rather than what at the time in the UK you were being encouraged to start mashing down a bit of fruit, if you start with vegetables in both in variety and frequency, it has a material impact on that child's vegetable intake when they're one, two, three, four, and five years old. So they will eat more vegetables. And no, everybody agrees this would be a good thing. And at the time, as, as I mentioned, so the, the UK government was recommending when you started weaning to start with fruit. And we said to them, well, can you change that to vegetables? And it was very difficult to get them to try and listen to us. So we did an activism campaign where we got a whole load of kids together. We marched on the Houses of Parliament, we marched on the, on the Department of Health. We delivered a huge uh, greener paper at the Department of Health. Now, we understood that they obviously wouldn't arrest children, which was a good thing for us. But through this activism campaign, they have now changed the cleaning guidelines, which is brilliant, which is really delivering on our mission. And, I mean, you, you wrote in 2019 in The Grocer that, you know, one in five primary school kids are starting school either overweight or obese, twice as many as 30 years ago. If we fast forward that to 2021, what, what's going on during the era of COVID? I don't know. You know, I think I've given up trying to predict what happens in COVID. I've given up trying to predict how I'm going to feel. It's been such an uncertain year. I think in terms of the birth rate, we're going to see probably the biggest fall in the birth rate in the UK since the war. Um, 
What, I mean, that that is, by the way, that is borne out by by the data. But what why what why do you think that is? I mean, some people say you, you should have expected the exact opposite. I, I think it's fear and uncertainty. So I think when you think about bringing a child into this in, into the world and you're fearful and you're uncertain about the future, it doesn't feel like an ideal time to have a baby. It also probably doesn't feel like an ideal time to go to hospital. We are speaking in a new chapter in the the kind of COVID battle, I guess, in terms of we're we're into one of these new phases of of a lesser lockdown. But when you look at that central challenge of mental health, well-being, fear, uncertainty, how that is addressed in a way where people will feel hope, where people will feel that there is a great future, is presumably more than just vaccines. How do you see it going forward in terms of the restitution of that that sense of hope, that sense of positivity? I mean, are are there actions that you see as the obvious ones or is this just something that's going to have to just work itself out over time? I think there's going to be a huge amount of PTSD both individually and collectively that we all need to it's one of these things I think where we've all shown such incredible resilience but when it starts to when society starts to open up again I think it's just going to be this my god what have we just gone through because we've almost sort of been blocking it out it's a bit like grief that sort of denial first stage of grief I think we've been in for you know, 12 months so it's going to be incredibly difficult it's going to be you know mental health you mentioned i mean this you know the mental health issue is is an epidemic already so it's going to be incredibly difficult and i think that's a very interesting way of stating it like the first stages of grief there is a role in that for the role of counseling i mean you you wrote about this being the time for leaders to lead is that part of what that's about the listening the counseling the understanding i mean what are the things that leaders now need to do to lead in this now unprecedented moment in human experience I think on both, I think leaders need to lead from a, a people point of view, but I'm going to go back to the, to the environment as well. And from an environmental point of view, we all know what we need to do. You know, we don't need government to legislate and tell us what to do. We really don't. And actually, if we wait for government, then we're finished. It's going to be way, way, way too late. You know, there was a study done, I think it was about nine months ago, it was in The Guardian. Tens of thousands of lives have been saved across Europe. This is just in the first few months of lockdown because of lower pollution levels. That doesn't even account all of the children that wouldn't have been born with serious you know, illnesses because of pollution. Yet we had this moment, and I think we all felt it as well. And actually, if you, if you look at some of how many companies responded to the pandemic using their businesses as a force for good, you know, whether it was Barber who were using their supply chain to produce gowns for the NHS, Formula One teams, the engineers coming together in Project Pitlane. I mean, they, I saw a doctor talking about it. He was saying those teams, the Formula One teams, managed to achieve in six weeks what would take us over a year. Unbelievable. And, 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 you know, I've had Jim O'Neill on the show, The Economist, and he was saying that this should be a moment, therefore, of great optimism because of the way that people have come together, the, the success of public and private collaboration in delivering the vaccine. You know, even this week, we're, we're sitting on data which shows that things like the national death rates are lower than, than you would historically have expected. Yet a sense of optimism and feel good is often seen to elude us at, at this time. And it's interesting to, to look at it from a, a social point of view in terms of when do we feel we're winning again? What are the what are the vital ingredients 
for that, do you think, in terms of what does the good stuff feel like? I mean, I think personally, I will feel like we're winning if we maintain that spirit. You know, when we were clapping for carers and we had the community spirit, and we were looking out for neighbours and there was no pollution and I could see stars at night in London. I felt really hopeful. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, I felt really hopeful. And I still feel hopeful that I feel a lot of us have had this time, this period of reflection. I certainly have in the last 12 months where I've genuinely, truly thought about what makes me happy and what gives me fulfillment at work. And I hope that a lot of people will leave jobs, leave the companies that are damaging the planet and don't care about them and go to companies that do. Because that way, the companies that actually don't care about people and the planet will either cease to exist or they will have to change their business model. So I'm hopeful, you know, millennials in particular, they get a lot of grief about it all being about themselves. It's like a me, me, me culture. But I actually think they're going to save the world because they are demanding more from the companies that they work for, which is brilliant. And they're going to demand more from the companies that they buy from. And I hope that that turbocharges as we come out of this period where we've been sort of in semi-lockdown for 12 months. I really hope that that's going to so I suppose if you're looking for some of the ingredients of feeling good, business as usual probably won't be one of those. But you and I also know a little bit about the feel good factor. We both began our careers as DJs. I tend to suspect that you were a somewhat cooler DJ than I was, Mark. But um, nevertheless, uh, I used to turn the record tables every so often. But I'm interested in, here's the young DJ that fishes up at CEO part of a major corporation tell us a little bit about that journey plan let's go back to that mark in terms of what did he think he was going to do and what might he have made of himself if he was listening to this interview and realizing that's me (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure we should entirely go back to my days (laughs) because i might not stay in my job what would he say i don't know i think he'd be quite surprised if, if i'm honest I hope that he would look at me and think he hasn't turned into a bit of an arsehole. Um, but I... would you recognise the kind of millennial mindset that you've spoken about? Is that such a generational thing or do you think you were motivated in similar ways when you were starting out? I don't think I was, to be honest. I think in I was just I think I was quite immature in my kind of early 20s. And I just didn't really think about these things, which is a bit embarrassing now when I think about them, because I because I feel I could have done much more, much faster if I had more confidence in myself and actually almost sort of seen the light about you know, what I can, what I can do. So, so was there a moment of consciousness where you just thought, I can make a difference, I could do something? I mean, was, is, was that just an evolution where you finished up where you are today? Or was there a kind of lightning bolt moment where you just thought, this could be me? There, there was a lot. Well, there were two lightning bolt moments. One was was meeting Paul and being inspired by him and seeing, wow, there's another way. And, and literally within a couple of weeks of meeting Paul, um, I read an article in the newspaper about work that Microsoft had done with the UNHCR in Bosnia. And it really, it was like just this moment where it changed my life. I was like, wow, like you know, people can use their businesses to solve massive societal problems. And I remember reading it thinking there wasn't a government in the world that could have achieved what Microsoft achieved. And actually, there probably wasn't another company. And then I got thinking about well, what would it feel like if you were one of those, you know, 30 employees that were sent out to the Balkans to to fix this problem for the UNHCR. I was thinking that'd be the most impactful work you ever do. I mean, that, that is going to be 
most important. I don't know, it just all started going on in my mind thinking, wow, this is this is amazing. This is so inspiring. This is what I want to do. Mm. And you, you mentioned other lightning bolts along, along the way. I mean, in, in terms of, I'm just thinking about the experiences that kind of lead to the purposeful leader, the mindful leader. What would you sort of, um, what else would you point to, you know, has been massively influential in, in your thinking, do you think? I think I come from a family of doctors. My, my dad was a doctor. His brother was a doctor. His dad was a doctor. My niece is, is a doctor. So it's very much runs in the family. And I think in my sort of 20s, I just started to think about, you know, what do, what do my dad get from it? What kind of Hippocratic oath? It's kind of like, is do the right thing? What, where you get to when, when you're brought up in a family of doctors? Well, I think so. And I think it's also, and I'm a real big believer in this. And I, I don't want to, you know, this came from a Simon Sinek speech. So I'm not going to steal it from Simon Sinek, but it's very, very obvious. You know, he talks about you can only get fulfillment in work in one way, in one way only, and it's helping other people. And I think about, you know, doctors, that's all they do. They dedicate their lives to helping other people. So I sort of had that in my past. And then, you know, just thinking about this the whole time, and I'm like, this is actually where I get fulfillment. It's not that I'm like a super nice guy that wants to change change the world. I actually get fulfillment through doing this. Mm. And do you think, I mean, just, just think he has a final thought. Does COVID and does this experience that we live through now, we're living through now, does does it make that impetus to help? As you've said, we've seen it. We've seen it through the citizen volunteers. We've seen it. You know, I, I had my vaccination. It was a volunteer that, that gave it to me. And it was I had a great sense of gratitude at that point. The problem with gratitude, a lot of people will tell you, is that it erodes over time. You forget it. You go back to old ways. I mean, do you think that we can hold on to some of this in terms of doing the right thing, helping others? Do you think that COVID is the catalyst or do you think it's a short-lived moment? No, I think it can be a catalyst. I mean, you talk now. I mean, I've, I've had recently had a vaccine as well and had a similar experience. I just thought it's absolutely incredible that all of these people who are volunteering to help others. You run a company, I run a company. You can keep that spirit alive through your company. You can then keep that spirit alive like we do by talking to all of our partners and everybody we deal with at Ellis Kitchen to try and persuade them to follow us down this path. So I think it can be kept alive if people want to keep it alive. You can be cynical and say it won't be kept alive, but that's, you know, there's the responsibility. We can keep it alive. You can keep it alive in, in, in Seven Hills. There we go. I think doing the right thing through the good stuff that we do. Mark Cadigan, thank you very much for joining me on Changemaker. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Michael.